Now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the 40 Acres and a Fool podcast. I am your host, Cam Edwards. At the kitchen table on a Wednesday evening as uh, we do the podcast here. Miss E is with me as well. Last week, uh, the keyword was resilience. This week, the keyword is uh, what? Time? Time management, <laughs> I suppose, would be a combination of two words that way. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting. You know, we've had a long winter, and all of a sudden, um, spring is here, and I'm not quite sure when it happened. And all of a sudden, we so, so we talked about the greenhouse. The greenhouse is not yet finished, right? No, the greenhouse, the frame is up. The we had a we had a, a a failure in trying to build the door because we broke off four out of six of the screws that we managed to screw into the door to put it together. The heads just popped off. I called the company. I explained the company had labeled the parts perfectly. Each bag was a section. You picked up the bag. It had all the parts. Right. It referenced you to the hardware. So I said what bag it was. I explained what hardware it was. I said what it was. Yep. Phillips head screw. They sent me Phillips head bolts and nuts that were so the wrong size. <laughs> so I don't want to have to do that again. So I have to go to Lowe's to get screws. So I put aside the door part. So the other part was putting the panels on. And the problem has been that it's been too windy when we've had the time or it's been raining. Right. And we can't put the panels on because it's a combination of edge trim to snap it in place and a silicone sealer to hold them down to glue it together, basically. And you can't do either one of them when it's rainy or windy. Yeah. So the uh, the greenhouse has yet to be completed. It uh, It's empty frame mocks us daily. Yes. Um, it's pretty. But <laughs> it's pretty. It's like a sculpture it is. Uh, in it's the kind garden, as opposed to anything there. useful. Uh, but it was it was uh, it was nice on Sunday. So we went out. We cleaned out ten garden beds. Uh, planted uh, was five different kinds of beets. Is Six, that right? Well, Six beets. Well, actually, we planted five distinct types of beets, and then we pant- planted a, f- a last sixth package that has three types in it. Okay, it was all so a harvest mixture. hybrid mixture. Yeah. All right. So we'll come. We'll come back to the beets. Uh, we also are running behind now on putting our tomato because we don't have a greenhouse. So we are now going to have to reassemble all of the shelves in front of every window that gets a uh, decent amount of light. And I, I think what's going to happen is since we want to focus on tomatoes, the tomatoes are going in. Yes. Uh, everything else is just going to be late going into the garden. I think so. Well, there's a lot though that you can start ahead of time or you can plant in place. Uh, the beans and the peas and the carrots and the onions and the garlic are all plant in place. The potatoes, the horseradish are all plant in place. The only plants that we could pre-start, peppers, which I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting sweet potato plants delivered. So the good thing is, is yes, we're behind, but or the, the bad thing is, is that we're behind, but the good thing is, is that it's still kind of manageable. Right. We're only a couple of weeks behind. Right. Uh, we're in zone seven. You want to try to put your seeds into the uh, uh, into the pots eight to ten weeks before the last frost. We are right now, about as, as we record this, we're about four weeks uh, before the last frost date. So we're a little behind, but uh, you know what? That's okay. Better late than never. And uh, we'll, we'll get them going this week, in, in this weekend. Uh, I was yeah. going to say that's going to be the project is to 
get all the shelves put together and start potting. I think even when I have a break on my lunch break, I'll just sit there and just start putting <laughs> planting material into pots so that we can moisten up and then put seeds into. I mean, it really is funny. Like, I, I'm not a fan of daylight savings time. I'd be fine if they got rid of it. But when all of a sudden, you know, this time of year rolls around and you get off of work and there's it's still daylight out, you want to be outside, you want to be working in the garden, you want to be doing this stuff. It makes you want to get up earlier and, all right, what can I do before I have to take the kids to school? And, and it's just that time of year uh, where... We're doing this. I guess the one good thing is that we aren't having to deal with uh, baby goats yet, right? Not yet. Um, I did the math out on the one based upon when the wily buck got out of his quarters. And that doe should be expected to kid uh, on or about April the 5th. So I'm backing out two to three weeks on the other two, which means any day now. All right. Well... We'll keep waiting. So back to the beets uh, for a minute, because I got to say, I grew up not liking beets. Like most people, I would say, if you said beet, I, I was I had the reaction of the uh, little brother Randy uh, in A Christmas Story, who uh, when forced to eat beets, I think his reaction was beets, beets, you know, like beets. I mean, I just didn't want to eat beets. Growing beets is fine. Uh, it doesn't mean I was going to eat them, but you know, I'd give them a try. As it turns out, I actually like beets. This is uh, this was a, a, a shocking discovery. Uh, and beets are very versatile because you can use the greens in salad, and they're tasty. Uh, and then the beets themselves, if they're not canned, if they're not you know the the, the tinned uh, beets, if they're if they're actually fresh and they're roasted, they're meaty, they're sweet, they're delicious. Oh, they're fantastic. I like them roasted and chilled and then served on a uh, kind of like a spicy arugula salad with some creamy goat cheese crumbles. Oh, that sounds so fancy. It's really fancy, but it's it's easy because it doesn't take much work to roast beets. Right. And then we canned beets last year. Yep. Um, but I'm with you. When I was made, I was made to eat beets as a kid. Mm-hmm. That was not something I enjoyed eating. And so growing them last year was sort of like a, hmm. But this year, with all the different types, I'm excited. All right, so run down the list. You've got the the Master Garden Bed Planner 2015 in well, front of you. <laughs> well, yeah, I do. It's a spreadsheet. It's, because- a, it's an actual, honest-to-goodness, Excel spreadsheet. Beds 1 through 10, rows A through H. Right. So there we go. And, so this is this is uh this is row A. And right? not and not every not every alphabetical <laughs> row has every number. H only goes up to bed 7 because it's more of a asymmetrical shape. You should see her sock drawer, by the way. It's uh Yeah. No, uh, it's not It's not that bad. But no, I'm kind of this bad because <laughs> I, well the thing is is that when you have a, a guard you have guard we have garden beds so we're not turning over the same area and, right we and have raised beds things. we have raised garden beds and we're adding to every year we're adding nutrients and we're turning over and we're adding other things too but we have to make sure that we keep track of what was the, planted the year before so that you you have to rotate right what you plant they I mean, recommend three to four years they say if you can manage it every other, and so I, that's why I have this map, because this zone is where all the tomatoes were, so I can't put tomatoes back here. I have to put tomatoes over here. I have to put tomatoes back here. This is where we had beets, so the beets have got Yeah, this is radio, over. by the way, so this and that doesn't really translate. I know, translate, but, anyway. but it's on the chart. Like, I, it's, it's 
it's just I have to keep track. Right. I understand. To, to, to have the best yields. So, yes. Yeah. So, in row A, uh, we started off uh, in bed four, and we have golden beets and albino beets. And I put them together because I, I kind of don't – red beets are really – red mm-hmm. and i was afraid even on a half bed there would be some sort of it would affect the color of of either golden or albino okay so i kind of wanted to keep them separate okay and then the next bed has chioga chioga it's ia at the end so i don't know whether it's chioga or chioga but okay. they're red and white striped yeah beets. they're really interesting when you cut into them it almost looks like a bullseye pattern right yes it does and they're really pretty and then they're paired with early wonders, which are just the really red beets that come early. So they're the smaller, like two to three inch. Kind. Okay, we grew those last year, and we they did. were they were really again they're really sweet. Sweet. The, the greens are good yeah. uh, in a salad, and 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 they're early too. So you know you're always impatient, right? You want there comes a point where you want something from the garden. You don't even really care what it is yet, but you want something from the garden. Give it just I don't a cake. I don't care. Something. It could be a melon. Yeah. It could be whatever. So beets are one of the first things that that will be coming up. And if you get an early wonder, I think it's like a forty day season, forty five yeah, forty five days. to fifty days, I believe. Uh, so it's it's really it's not that long. Um, and they're nice and little, like you said. They're they're super sweet. They're a concentrated, yummy flavor. They're really good. We had them. I stir-fried the beet greens and roasted the little ones and mm-hmm. with a little bit of garlic, and we served that as a warm salad. Yep. And that, that was, was really tasty. It was good. So, And then the last bed, I've got, they're called a Lutz salad leaf. And so the, the greens themselves are different because they're like bigger salad and they're a lot, uh, they're a lot more tasty. You can eat them not cooked or cooked, mm-hmm. but the... Beets themselves are supposedly a called a winter keeper. So if we grow them this spring, they'll get to like to be three or four. They could be three to four pounds. Wow! And they could be held over, so they're storage beets. So I'm trying that. Okay. And then the there's that's about uh, about mm, two fifths of the bed, and then the other three fifths of the bed is that harvest hybrid mix. And there was a. There's a couple of different colors in that, and I can't remember what the names are, but it was just like a territorial feet a seed blend. We also uh, were talking about putting out uh, for for crops um, sugar beets, which you can plant, although we have not yet done that. And I've actually heard, I'd, I'd love to get uh, the advice of anybody who has tried to plant sugar beets as a, just a, a root crop for livestock. Uh, what I've been told is that I'll be lucky if any of it actually grows because the deer... We'll eat the greens before the uh, the beets actually have a chance to get as big as they could be. So I, I'd love to hear anybody's personal experience <clears throat> with sugar. Well, let me rephrase that. I would love to hear your experience with sugar beets, growing them for livestock. If you have any other experiences with sugar beets, I really don't want to know about them. Keep that to yourself. <laughs> Maybe send it to Sugar Beet Monthly or something like that. There's there's an audience for it somewhere. I mean, the internet is a very wide in varied place, which explains why we are here. Uh, so we're going to take a quick timeout. Uh, we have more 40 acres and a fool on the way, more from the 40 acres. Uh, and we'll st- I'm still feeling my way out through the uh, rest of the program. It's been a very interesting week for me. So in uh, some non-farm related news. So uh, keep it right here. And we'll be right back on 40 acres and a fool. You're listening to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.
40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. It's the show that you can listen to while the cows come home. It's 40 Acres and a Fool. I'm your host, Cam Edwards. Still trying out some uh, different taglines and everything. Miss E is with us as well, talking about uh, planting in the garden, getting behind a little bit this time of year. And, and you know, you can get frustrated. You can get uh, a little frazzled. You know, you just got to take a deep breath, do what you can do. Uh, there's only so many hours in the day. We all have other responsibilities. Most people, even those who rely on their farm for uh, a source of income, have a non an off-farm job. I mean, that's just the way that it is. And this is just the time of year where life starts to get busy. Just wait, honey, uh, and, until we are, are spending hours on our hands and knees picking out the little tiny weeds because they're really hard to tell the difference between the little tiny weeds and the little tiny seeds uh, and seedlings that are popping up. Especially with carrots and beets. I think I had, remember having this conversation with one of my friends. She grew beets for the first time last year, and she was so hyper-diligent about trying to get rid of the weeds that she thinks she must have decimated her beet, beet bed. <laughs> I remember pulling out a couple of uh, beets and then realizing afterwards, oh, those were beets, those yes. weren't weeds. The thing about beets, though, is that you, you sow them, you, you're inevitably going to have to thin them out anyway. Because they grow, they tend to grow in clumps, and so you're going to have to, at some point, as they get bigger, thin out some of the uh, the beets that are in your garden bed. It's because the, the the seeds, when you open up a package of beet seeds, they're the seeds themselves aren't a seed; they're actually a little cl- a, a pod cluster. And so, a trick that I I read in one of my gardening books is that you soak them overnight with some. Uh, you soak them overnight with in water with like two to three drops of dish detergent, and it sort of helps to soften the external kernel. But that's why you get a lot of greens in little bunches is because each one of those seeds is more of a cluster. So, yes, there's a lot of thinning. Hmm. I saw external kernel open up for uh, XTC actually back in... I think it was 87. Was it the uh, Mayor of Simpleton tour, I think? External kernel. How many times do you think you're <laughs> going to be able to pull that before people realize what you're doing? Oh, uh, we do it on the uh, on the, 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 the big show, the oh. uh, NRA News Cam and Company. That's, a, that's an ongoing joke. As a matter of fact, there's an ongoing dispute as to who is actually the... Uh, the the creator of that joke. I do not claim uh, creatorship. I am merely a, a borrower of that joke. But uh, two of our, our regular guests on NRA News, Cam and Company, which, by the way, I realize I'm doing a horrible job of, of promoting the other stuff that I'm doing. So I should tell you, uh, I, I assume that a lot of you are here because of NRA News, Cam and Company. But if you're not, go listen to NRA News, Cam and Company. It's weekdays, 2 p.m. Eastern on NRAnews.com. It's a three-hour live radio show. It's available on demand on iTunes and at iHeartRadio. We also do the uh, uh, NRA News Cam and Company television show on Sportsman Channel live, 5 p.m. Eastern every day. It's uh, uh, just completely extemporaneous, just like this. There's no script. There's no writers. It's just completely ad lib. It's it's madcap and zany, and you never know what's going to happen. Well, it's not quite it's not really zany. Madcap. I mean, we, we, we actually do a pretty good job yeah, you keeping have, things under the control. You have but, uh, an idea what you're talking but about. But every now and then. Yes. And you never know what could some, happen because well, it's live. It's also breaking news. That's true. But you know, you just you never know. No, you never know what could happen. I mean, tomorrow we might be talking about five baby goats. <laughs> At well, least next week. At least five. I feel like the the count from Sesame Street now, like six six forms of beats, five five baby goats, fifteen fifteen new chi- well fourteen new Four, chickens, fourteen new pullets. Yes. Yeah. 
Different varieties, too, all different kinds of pullets. Yes, this time around, I went with the kind that will actually hide from coyotes versus the brightly <laughs> colored yellow ones that seem to get picked off like our house is a Kentucky Fried Chicken drive through Virginia Raw Chicken, I know. Um, but here's the thing, and it's just a run-through, I think. It but, is a run-through. But, but it has to be said as well. So we have the Buff Warpingtons, which are the bright yellow chickens. But we also had Rhode Island Reds. That got eaten, and they were very dark brown. They hid very well, I thought, when they were in the bushes. Well, the thing is, is that I got the Anconas, which we only ended up with three of them, because even though they're supposedly very good at foraging and they run away from predators, they don't survive well when they get shipped, and they don't do well at all. So of the ten, I ended up with three. Wow. Wow. And I don't even think that was my half. I think she saved them for me because I knew I wanted these Anconas. Right. So the Anconas are a white egg-laying chicken. Like I said, they're supposedly good about hiding from hawks and running. We'll okay. see how that goes. And then we have barred rocks. I think we have five barred, five or seven barred rocks. I am, yeah, seven barred rocks. And a barred rock is a black and white striped. Uh, also... Uh, good at foraging, good overwintering, very pretty. They are very pretty. And they lay a brown egg, and we have four Americanas. They're also called quote-unquote Easter eggers. They don't, they're all shades of sort of uh, goldish, reddish black. They don't look anything like one another. And they lay blue-green eggs. Yeah, we've had a... uh... We have a rooster. We have right? a rooster. Uh, Chip is an Americana rooster, and he managed to... He's the alpha, by the he's way. He's our alpha, and he's the one free with purchase, because he's of the <laughs> right. original box of 30 we have 31 Buff Warpingtons, Buff Warpingtons right? and this one free rooster who is the alpha, and so he's taken over. he's taken over everything. Poor Bob is so not. But anyway, he had two Bob daughters. is one of the other roosters, by the way. We, we named the roosters. We, we don't name the hens because it's hard to tell the, the, the hens same. apart, right? And you have the 30 of them. So the hens are Buffies uh, from Buff Warpingtons. We had uh, we had three roosters originally. There was uh, there was Chip. We had four originally. Well, four. Uh, Jay, uh, Jay and Silent, Silent Bob. Bob. Yeah. Hi, Kevin Smith. And then we had Ned Flanders. Ned Flanders because he only right. had his one chicken that he always hung out with, so yeah. he was monogamous. Yeah, because the because had... the because the roosters usually will have like four to six hens that are sort of that they're in charge of. At least that's when you have enough hens, right? That's sort of the 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 rooster to hen ratio. Well, the actual. Chicken people, perfect rooster to hen ratio is one to nine. Okay. But ours only can't keep them. Well, managed. I'm not a perfect chicken person. No, but, and these can't manage. They're not perfect chickens. <laughs> they haven't been able to do a really good job keeping their hens from getting eaten by anything. Right. So. Yeah. So Ned Flanders turned mean. Uh, he was always attacking every kid. He began the Napoleonic complex because he was the smallest of the buff Orpington roosters, even mm. though he was the orangest. But yes, he would attack. He wouldn't attack adults, but he no, would attack kids. any child under four feet tall. Yeah, any kid. And he so. had big spurs. So yeah. he was the first one that I processed. And yeah. I, it was good because I didn't, it wasn't a boo-hoo session I have to do one of my chickens it was a yeah i'm sorry ned you gotta go right so yeah ned turned into a chicken soup yep uh, with rice yeah jay was the first to go he actually died of natural causes i'm still not sure what happened to jay we found him in the garden uh just 
dead. I think uh, no, no sign of trauma. I don't think unless he was, a sh- but I didn't even see any feathers loose. I don't think he was shaken to death. I don't know what happened with I th- Jay. I think um, it was probably something got got interrupted, and mm. he might have gotten his neck broken by a, a small like a, a coyote or a fox. But one of the kids was had been heading down in the garden and may have interrupted the whole thing because he looked like he was asleep. But yeah, he was a he little was too not fluffy. asleep. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so so Jay and Silent Bob. Uh, it just went to, to it just went to to Bob. Bob, by the way, actually we named Jay and Silent Bob because of Silent Bob, because Bob was the rooster who would not crow. No, or and he, then when Bob started to crow, it was it was pathetic. It was a I mean, sad it was sad. Yeah. yeah, it was. You know, it wasn't the. It was. And and we named Jay Jay because he was just. He was the original alpha was, rooster. I mean, he was. Yeah, he he had the swagger. Yeah, you know, he was um, he was totally owning it. Yeah, yeah. Poor Jay. Uh, so now Chip is in charge of the uh, the, the various uh, hens in the yard, and, and we have half breed chickens who end up. So he had two daughters by Buffy's. So they were half Americana, half Buff Orpingtons, and one of them. We called them the Chipettes. By yeah, the, the way. Chipettes. Chipette and Chipetta is actually what one of our daughters called them. But uh, one of them laid bluish eggs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the other one. Yeah, well, they both did. I don't have either one of them now. It's a common story here on the house. Eaten uh, by a coyote. 40, yeah, eaten yeah. by a coyote. Eaten go? by a coyote is the 40 acres in a full version of You Have Been Killed by Dysentery <laughs> on the Oregon Trail. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Yeah. If this ever is a video game, that's going to be the most common ending. You're going to be like, oh, my chickens got eaten by coyotes again. I got to well, restart. Before the the newest, so I have two pullets of the five that I got, and I have 15, 14 new little ones. But before them, I was down to five hens and two roosters from 46. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, again, it's over two years, but and and it's been like we've we had to process some of the roosters and other things happened to the chickens, and so one of them drowned in the water dish by accident because he was too little to get into it. And uh, the when we first put the hens out, or we, we when we had them in the house and we first moved them into the coop, it was beautiful. And then within two days, a snowstorm hit. Mm-hmm. So we lost a couple of chickens and to we the had cold. Storms where the winds just like blew the chickens, a couple of the chickens away. We just never. The we very never beginning saw the of May. Again. No, we didn't. I went to that. Uh, I went to a rain barrel building workshop, mm-hmm. and this crazy storm hit. I came home, and there were trees over the road, and I get to the house, and things are just—it's absolutely insane how windy it was. And then the next morning, we go try to find chickens, and there were at least three missing. Yeah, that uh, just. Went away, unfortunately. But we do have plans this year because I'm fed up with this. I'm I'm I'm, I'm tired of uh, being the uh, the run through of the uh, Virginia Raw Chicken franchise. I don't want that. So mm-hmm. we here's the trade off. Now we could still call our chickens free range chickens, even if we build a chicken yard that eventually they peck free of of every ounce of grass. They would still be considered free range chickens. I wouldn't consider them free range chickens at that point, though. No, but so the the what I really want to do is I want to fence in the entire garden and have the coop part of it, and then keep them away from some of the plants with 
specialty fencing. Yeah, because here's, I mean, like, we it's haven't nice, had... It's, well, because it's nice to have chickens in the garden between them eating the pests and bugs and pooping and fertilizing. Right. It's a good thing. Yeah, now you do have to make sure that, you know, when you are washing your vegetables that you wash your vegetables always you know really really well yes uh we have not had problems with our chickens eating a lot of our vegetables they do like our blueberry bushes though they, they love our blueberries but all birds are do you remember last year one woodpecker managed to get himself tangled in the bird net yep. not once but twice mm-hmm. and i had to cut him out and, and by the way we it, yeah i know and by the way let it be known that yes, we raise and eat our own bacon. Yes, we uh, you know uh, harvest our own chickens, but we also took the time to free that woodpecker. It was tangled up in there. I mean, it took a lot, a lot of time and uh, and effort, but we made sure that it was okay, and we sent it on its very very way. So twice, yeah, twice. <laughs> Stupid thing did it twice yeah. and yelled at me the entire time like it was my fault that he didn't learn his lesson the first time. Yeah. So we'll put up, and by the way, and that's because we put up the bird netting so that the birds wouldn't get the blueberries. And I'm not quite sure how well that worked, given that the birds would still fly into the netting. Well, I think that was because there was sort of a gap and he managed to get kind of up and under. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, we didn't lose as many blueberries this year as we did the previous year when we didn't have the netting. So I'm going with netting. Okay. All right. I'll just cut the birds out. Okay. It helped from the chickens. The chickens, the first year we were here, they ate a lot of blueberries off the bushes. They did. They would actually like they jump would jump. Up I would watch the them from my window. I could see them jumping, hopping to get the blueberries with the black netting in place. They didn't try as hard, so no. if it saved it from our own chickens. I'm telling you, chickens are are better than you know with with some shows on Sportsman Channel uh, excluded chickens are better than like 90% of what's on television. Oh, they're so dramaful too, especially since now we have three different ages. Right? Because we've got the we've still got a few of the original. We have the And then we have some young uh you know, adolescent late adolescent chickens, right? Pullets. If, if, pull, well, but they're yeah, all, they're, the, they're, all they're the little, little ones are pullets, but they're yeah, they're like the teenage version. Right. And then you have the kids, and the, the, the annoying the children, children who, you know, just to peep all the time. Right. <laughs> Nonstop peeping. So it is fun to watch. And it's uh it's 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 nice this time of year when, you know, again you can spend some time outside watching and uh hopefully not watch as a coyote comes and takes your chickens away. Yeah, I don't want to see that one again. No. All right, we're going to take a a quick timeout here on 40 Acres and a Fool. When we come back, not quite sure uh, what we're going to do, but we will have a change of location. We're going to shut down the kitchen table. Uh, We're going to uh, uh, head off to bed here and get ready to put the kids on the bus in the morning. And uh, when when you... hear the next segment of 40 acres and a fool it will only be a a few moments in time for you but for me hours will have passed and it will be a bright and early thursday morning so i mean i suppose you could hit the pause button now and come back four or five hours later if you want to do this in like jack bauer 24 real time but uh you could just you know just go with the flow and uh we'll be back with some sort of segment here on 40 acres and a fool Right after this. This is 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Forty Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. 
better hours and hours of sleep but uh again for you it may have just been a matter of moments anyway we're back here on uh, 40 acres and a fool the uh the latest reading um that i've been doing this week charles cook's new book the conservatarian manifesto i'm going to be talking more about that on uh next week's program i think i want to explore uh, charles's new book I'm glad to see that it is getting uh, as much attention as it is charles is uh, i think the subject of a profile in the New York Times Magazine this weekend, so that is uh, awesome. I've also been reading, I think it's called Crucible of Command. I don't have it right here in front of me, but it is a dual biography of Ulysses Grant and uh, Robert E. Lee, uh, focusing primarily on the last year of the Civil War. Just started it, uh, going to be interviewing the author, I think, on NRA News Cam and Company before long. And I had the opportunity to interview the author of The Great Divide, the conflict between Washington and Jefferson that defined a nation, Thomas Fleming. Uh, is the author of the the new book, which uh, explores uh, how it was that uh, Washington and Jefferson came to split apart politically, which which really tells the story of the founding of the first political parties uh, in this country. Uh, Jefferson, I think, is the uh, regarded as the 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 founder of the first political party, which was the opposition party to uh, what George Washington uh, was doing with his presidency. And so Fleming's book explores this. In, uh, in, a, in a great de- amount of detail. And it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't think that uh, Thomas Fleming holds uh, Thomas Jefferson in particularly high regard, uh, certainly not compared to uh, George Washington in the book. Uh, Thomas Fleming uh, uh, also talks about there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of exploration of the idea of a strong presidency versus a weak presidency, and Jefferson advocating for a weak presidency, uh, uh, Washington advocating for a strong presidency, and how that has uh, echoed and played out throughout American history. Personally, I think it's inevitable that uh, this country would have had a strong first president in George Washington. I think it, it, it is not necessarily precedent setting that every other president thereafter has to be a strong president. But but you look at why the Constitution was ratified, uh, the failures of the Confederation uh, of, of states that had, you know, not managed to uh, that had managed to basically run the government into the ground. Um, it's not surprising to me that, that Washington was a strong first president, but he was also strong in terms of a hands-off policy. Uh, you know, his policy of strict neutrality in the uh, uh, entirety of his uh, presidential term, and he even talked about the the need to uh, be neutral in our dealings with other countries, to not get into uh, entanglements or alliances, not to let our our, our feelings of uh, what countries may have done in the past cloud our judgment about what's going on with these foreign nations today. Uh, that was a direct remark uh, to Thomas Jefferson. That was a direct remark to those who at the time were supporting France and encouraging the United States to uh, take a much more uh, anti-British uh, stance and, and, and ally themselves with, with our allies in the American Revolution. And this was ultimately, I think, one of the uh, the, the big may have what caused the great divide between Jefferson and Washington. There certainly were other uh, areas of disagreement. Uh, the uh, Bank of the United States, uh, for instance. Uh, and again, Jefferson, Jefferson had, had, had issues uh, going back to the uh, formation of the Constitution himself because he wasn't, he wasn't there. He was in France at the time. He was uh, very, very critical of the uh, Constitution at least until he was uh, president himself. Anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating book. Uh, I can't get into everything, but Washington and Jefferson were such, again, complex individuals. But uh, one of the things that struck me, again, as I reread this book, and I, I, I've read a lot of biographies of uh, Thomas Jefferson, and 
you know, look, he he was a um, he was a, a visionary man in a lot of ways, but uh, he was also kind of a utopian. I, I sometimes wonder if Jefferson, in his 30s, 40s, 50s, if if, if he were a political figure today, um, would he be more likely to be on Fox News, uh, you know, preaching his small farmer, agrarian, uh, populist, you know, small town America uh, life, or would he be more likely to be on MSNBC? Uh, lecturing uh, all of us about the uh, the lives of luxury that we live and and, and how we need to be a, a more simpler uh, society and a more simpler country before he goes back to his you know fourteen thousand square foot mansion uh, in the uh, Virginia uh, mountains. It, it 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 I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, these are complex individuals. Maybe uh, maybe he'd be on MSNBC one night and on Fox the other. But he did unfortunately. Uh, get something just disastrously wrong, I think. Uh, and that was his support for the French Revolution. This was, uh, again, the I, I think the, uh, the, the root of that great divide between Jefferson and Washington. Jefferson wasn't involved in the writing of the Constitution because he was in France at the time that the French Revolution broke out. And he saw this, as did a lot of other Americans, as a continuation uh, of... of our own revolution. This was going to be an end to uh, monarchy and, and despotism uh, throughout the the the, the world uh, as as we knew it, right? The uh, the civilized world as they knew it. He uh, he embraced the French Revolution wholeheartedly, and there's again there's there's no fault in that. A lot of people did at the beginning, but he was very very slow. Um, not, not not just slow. He was reticent about refusing to see the uh, increased anarchy and chaos, and ultimately the spiral down from the uh, the promise of a a new republic into a new despot and a new emperor named Napoleon. He 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 never saw that the the seeds of that were sown. Uh, in the early days of the revolution in France, that perhaps it was uh, baked into the cake that uh, Marie Antoinette wanted them to eat. And I know that's an apocryphal story. Um, but for an example, Jefferson uh, wrote, while he was in France, uh, a letter to one of his French correspondents, uh, Fleming writes, and this is what he said. He said, I have so much confidence. And this is in the, the early days. The king's still alive. Uh, they're working towards a constitutional monarchy. The, the hope is in the air. And he said, I have so much confidence in the good sense of man and his qualifications for self-government that I am never afraid of the issue where reason is left free to exert her force. And I will agree to be stoned as a false prophet if all does not end well in this country, nor will it end with this country. Here is but the first chapter in the history of European religion. Well, we do know how it turned out. I uh, don't know that Jefferson ever volunteered for that uh, stoning as a false prophet. Uh, Fleming, by the way, says that uh, Jefferson was having a conversion experience. He says, with no traditional religious faith to balance his intellect and emotions, politics had become Thomas Jefferson's religion. The cause of liberty sustained by his belief in the essential goodness of human beings became his chief article of belief. Few people, above all Jefferson himself, have understood his experience this way. Viewed from the distance of two centuries, it was a turning point in American history. 
And, and I, I think it has to be said uh, that there's a lot of evidence that, that Jefferson really was caught up in the moment, that he was a passionate man. Uh, and maybe that is one of the differences between Washington and Jefferson. Not that Washington was dispassionate, but that Washington was known for the control of his emotions. When he let loose, it was legendary. There are only a few stories of Washington losing his temper. He took great pride in controlling his emotions. Uh, Jefferson, I think, was the opposite in, in a lot of ways. And he let himself get carried away. Uh, time and time again, he let his passions get carried away to wonderful purpose in the Declaration of Independence, uh, to some not-so-wonderful purposes throughout his long and extensive political life. At, at around the same time he wrote that first letter, he wrote another letter. Fleming calls it one of the longest and most important letters of Jefferson's life. He wrote it September 6th, 1789. And it was about an idea that was swirling through Paris. Jefferson, Fleming says, had begun to think it justified all revolutions and might be useful to the new government in America. Keep in mind, 1789. Right, this is uh, a constitution uh, has been... Uh, ratified. We don't have the uh, Bill of Rights yet. We uh, are very, very, I mean, it's, it's the infancy of our, what we think of as our nation. And this was the question. Whether one generation of men has a right to bind another seems never to have been stated on this or our side of the water. Yet it is of such consequence as to merit place among the fundamental principles of every government. Fleming writes, what was this huge idea? That the earth belongs to the living. Jefferson had declared the principle was self-evident. No man has power or right over his money or property after his death. Quote, it ceases to be his when himself ceases to be and reverts to the society. Debts, he thought, contracted by the dead person should also be canceled. And Jefferson proceeded to apply this principle to generations. Fleming writes that he had studied mortality statistics and concluded that every 19 years made up a generation. And so why should every new generation, why should the millennials be expected to pay for Generation X's debts? And why should Generation X's debts be expected to pay for the boomers' uh, debts? And why should the boomers be expected to pay, right, and so on and so forth? Jefferson wrote, every constitution and every law naturally expires at the end of 19 years. If it is enforced longer, it is an act of force and not of right. Compare that to the, the Burkean uh, contract, the, the, the uh, contract laid out by uh, Edward, Edmund Burke, uh, that the earth belongs not only to the living, but it belongs to those who came before us, and it belongs to those who will come after us, that we have a contract, that we enter into a contract, uh, and this contract is eternal and, and, and binding on, uh, on humankind, that and that contract extends, again, from the dead to the living to those not yet born. It's a very, very, very different philosophy. Uh, Jefferson, Fleming says, uh, uh, asked Madison to, quote, turn this subject in your mind, particularly as to the power of contracting debts, and develop it with a perspicuity and cogent logic so peculiarly yours. He also uh, thought that this would be particularly useful 
uh, to the, quote, councils of our country, like, you know, uh, Congress and maybe even the uh, state legislatures. How can we just, you know, just get rid of the debts? After, and, and when you die, all of your debt should be forgiven. I mean, that's that's not likely to be found. Again, you wonder where Thomas Jefferson, uh, at that point in time, if you just took this Thomas Jefferson from 1789 and uh, put him in 2015 America and said, Tom, where do you want to go on TV? You're going to get to host a show. Where, where do you think he would be most likely to end up? I don't think it would be Fox at that point. I mean, this, this is almost Occupy-esque. And it does have to be noted that Thomas Jefferson was not really good with his finances. Um, he died in debt. Monticello fell into disrepair. There were attempts in his uh, later life to, uh, to raise a lottery uh, or to, 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 to have a lottery in the state of Virginia to raise funds to help uh, uh, pay off some of his debts. I mean, this, you know, he was not good with money. He was not the only one who was not good with money, but Thomas Jefferson was not good with money. And so you can't help but wonder if this was not perhaps uh, coloring his, his thinking. Interestingly enough, uh, Fleming says that, that Jefferson did not mail this letter to James Madison. He took it back with him uh, on the boat as they, uh, as they went across the Atlantic, and he gave it to him in person when the uh, two of them... Uh, met in Virginia. And, and it also has to be said that uh, Madison uh, was a little bit more realistic, a little bit more pragmatic, and uh, didn't, didn't poo-poo uh, outright what Jefferson had to say, but, but did, I think, try to gently uh, steer Thomas Jefferson back towards a, a, a wiser course uh, and a, a more practical course once he was uh, back on, let's say, more solid ground uh, in the United States. Anyway, that that is just one small part of a fascinating book and a fascinating exploration of both uh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, it, it, it's it is e- it's, it, it is easy, I think, to try to read these books as current events and to think, well, where would Washington be? Who who's the who's the corollary uh, to these historical figures? I do it myself, um, but but if you can, try to keep in mind that we know more about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. We know more about Alexander Hamilton and Andrew uh, Aaron Burr, uh, and, and you know even even folks like uh, Henry Knox and uh, others. We know a lot more about these individuals because the historians are telling us not the uh, the news media. We are able to get a more complete view of these uh, political figures as as individuals with their personality conflicts, with their their egos and their insecurities uh, than we are with our public figures today. and And that was probably the case back then too. We know more about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, certainly than, uh, the average American simply reading the National Gazette or the uh, Aurora newspaper would have known. So just enjoy it for the history. And, uh, and, and yes, look for those, if not parallels, uh, look for those rhymes with our own current events that, uh, that we see today, whether it's uh, Jefferson tackling the uh, Barbary pirates 
or uh, a, a disastrous uh, financial policy like the uh, embargo of 1807 or uh, a, a Washington uh, in the uh, negotiations with uh, Great Britain, the, uh, the nation that you know we had just won our independence from, uh, in a treaty that looked like it was uh, certainly much more favorable to Great Britain than it was to the United States. All of these stories uh, and more, I think, have, have some relevance and some lesson that uh, can be applied to uh, circumstances and, uh, and, and stories that we see uh, in our own daily events and in our own newspapers and on our uh, Twitter feeds, even if they're not uh, perfect parallels. So the book is The Great Divide. The author is Thomas Fleming. And uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. All right, stick around. We still have more 40 Acres in a Fool on the way, thanks to the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards returns now on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, please direct any Jeffersonian-related criticisms to 40acrefool at gmail.com, 40acrefool at gmail.com. We, uh, we also uh, do take uh, farming uh, and gardening advice and stories. Uh, I love to hear from you and in your experience, what are you doing? What are you growing this year? Are you behind schedule uh, like me? Are you ahead of schedule? If so, good for you. Uh, what, what types of uh, uh, tricks do you have to, uh, to organize uh, your garden and to, uh, to, to make sure that you can take advantage of the uh, relatively uh, little time that, uh, that you have to work on it? I, I, I would love to hear from you, and I do love to hear the stories, uh, including uh, future plans. You know, this is something that uh, clearly a lot of people are, are working towards, the idea of having their own place, uh, a, a little self-sufficiency. And, and in that sense, you know, that, that Jeffersonian utopianism, right, of the, uh, the, the small farmer, um, that idea has stayed, I think, uh, present here in the United States, even as we have become a more and more urban society. Uh, you know, we are, are not nearly the rural country that we were even 50 years ago, uh, much less 100 or 200 years ago. And yet, that ideal is still not just present, but I, I think it is uh, growing in this country. I think, you know, maybe 100 years from now, we look back at this as uh, sort of the tipping point where we became as urbanized as we possibly wanted to be. And if, uh, if you wanted to live in a city, there, there were great big cities that, uh, that you could live in, but that there was also the opportunity uh, in the rural life to live as full and as rich and as complex a life as you wanted, which you haven't really ever had in American history before, but now technology allows that. Uh, anyway, I could get really philosophical uh, on this topic, and maybe I will, because I there is something to the idea of the near frontier uh, and the, the the new pioneers of the uh, 21st century on that near frontier and what can be done uh, with these small towns and the, uh, uh, the empty spaces that we have in this country. But uh, I know I'll get some criticism for that. It's all right. I'm used to criticism. 
especially this week. Uh, now, I'm not going to rehash the uh, the whole Media Matters, Cam Edwards, Emmy non-story controversy, but uh, if you want to read all about it, just Google Cam Edwards Emmy, actually, uh, and you'll read, you'll, you'll get the Media Matters story that they wrote uh, first, and then further down the page, you'll find a piece that I wrote for the Federalist called Anatomy of a Failed Smear. Uh, this was just such a ridiculous story, uh, and I, I think it's over and done with now. I think that it. I think. I think you know, the fact that they said that I, uh, uh, you know, was, was was lying basically. Stolen valor, right? Cam Edwards says he won an Emmy, and he didn't win an Emmy. Um, it's just ridiculous. But the 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 I, I wrote a piece for the Federalist, and I, I I still might write an update. I'm not sure. Um, because at the time, I, I really struggled with the ending. I, I wanted to talk about, you know, the lessons that I've learned from this. And I was really struggling to find a, a good lesson other than, um, you know, appreciate the people that you have around you and make sure that uh, uh, you keep them in mind. It's it's good to, to recognize uh, when you are uh, either the host of a show or part of a marriage or, you know, part of a friendship. Uh, it's good to acknowledge those relationships. It's it's very easy to get wrapped up in your own stuff these days. Uh, I think just by the, uh, the the very lives that we that we live. But it's 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 important that we uh, that we remember and we um, thank and reconnect with those people. So that was a lesson that I had learned, and it, it, it's a lesson that I've continued to learn actually because after this media matters piece. Uh, came out. I, I actually heard from some of the folks that I worked with in the documentary unit, uh, and it was oh, it was it was so good to hear from them. Um, guys like Barry Levy, who I actually worked with years ago, uh, almost when I still had hair. That's how long ago it was that I worked with Barry Levy, and Barry was such a great mentor. He was a photographer at the uh, CBS affiliate in Oklahoma City, and I was a, a producer of health segments. Uh, and we would occasionally get to, to go out. Uh, I'd get assigned to Barry, and Barry was always nice. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a producer, if I wanted to try to be the world's funniest-looking uh, TV reporter. I mean, you know, in, a, in an industry that uh, people really do have to look pretty, uh, that was a, 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 a big stretch for me at the time. I didn't know if, I, uh, if I'd be able to pull it off, and, and, I, and I had really no experience in front of the camera at that time, so... Barry would help me with my stand-ups, and, and it helped me with uh, just, you know, learning the uh, the tricks of the trade. Ultimately, it didn't happen. I went into radio. I discovered, hey, I can be a reporter, and I don't have to be pretty. Oh, this is fantastic. So with a face made for radio, it was the, uh, the natural uh, jump. But I got to hear from Barry this week, and I uh, heard from Susan Miller, who was the uh, my my other writer uh, producer uh, reporter uh, on uh, the state line program. I heard from Bill Perry, the executive director of the documentary unit, who sent me a, a very nice email uh, explaining, by the way, in great detail uh, what what he thinks happened. If you want the simple explanation for what happened here. Uh, you're wondering why I have a certificate for an Emmy instead of a, a statue for an Emmy and what that means, because apparently I, that does not make you, if you don't have the statue, you are not an Emmy winner, right? You cannot say you are an Emmy winner because you have to have the statue. But what happened uh, 12 years ago when the award was submitted is there were six names uh, that could be included on the award. There were 19 people 
who worked on the documentary. Um, there were, including, I think, 11 different videographers. Uh, Susan Miller, Randy Renner, and myself were the primary reporter producers. Uh, but Susan is the only reporter producer listed uh, on the, uh, the entry. So uh, we all did equal work. We, uh, we all did our own individual segment for the, uh, for the documentary program. Uh, but Susan was the only one listed. Uh, so anyway, there, and, and, and that was just names were going to be left out. Uh, it being 12 years ago, I can't remember why that was the case. Uh, Bill thinks that it may have had to do with the fact that uh, in order to get a, a statue, you have to put your money up before you know you've won. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, you're betting on yourself. You're betting on yourself to win. So I'm going to put up my entry fee, and I'm going to win this Emmy. And if you don't, uh, you've helped pay for somebody else's Emmy, and you've helped keep the uh, National Association of Television Arts and Sciences uh, doing what they're doing each and every year. Uh, that uh, So I, I don't know. I Honestly, I can't remember if I was uh, given the opportunity and didn't have the money, uh, didn't think we were going to win. Can't imagine that was the case. But for whatever reason, uh, it didn't happen. It didn't happen for a lot of other people either. So, again, it's a simple, simple story. The other cool thing was I actually had a conversation with the uh, executive director of the Heartland chapter of the National Association of Television Arts and Sciences, who was quoted in this Media Matters story uh, and, you know, kind of made it sound like she was just, you know, well, he's misrepresenting himself. Oh, he should not be doing this. What an awful, awful person. Can't believe this. Um, We had a very nice conversation. And it was not a, a conversation where this was, I was interviewing her for a, a story, so I'm not going to share any details. But it was a very nice conversation. I feel, I feel bad that uh, uh, she and, frankly, the, uh, the, the Heartland chapter of the National Association of Television Arts and Sciences uh, got dragged into this non-story. But on the other hand, I got to actually have a conversation with somebody who does care about good journalism. And it's important uh, to realize and to remember that there are people like that out there uh, in this world where there are so many members of the uh, media or or people who want to believe that they are a part of media that matters uh, who are writing these types of stories to uh, you know feed the outrage beast uh, on a daily basis. There, there's there are people out there doing better work out there, and uh, you can find it. You just gotta search for it. So that's, I, I think, a uh, one of the lessons that I did learn. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is a lesson that is easy to learn, but we do need to constantly be reminded because we are just inundated with crap uh, every day. <laughs> there's just so much. There's, there's crap on TV. There's crap on the Internet. I mean, there's just a bunch of shoddy stories. There's a bunch of shoddy stuff uh, because we are about quantity, not necessarily about quality out there. There are people, though, who are uh, creating, whether it's uh, books or uh, television programs or movies or songs, or whatever. there are people out there who, uh, who, beer, kitchen tables, bicycles. I mean, there are people out there who do take pride uh, in quality. And that is what they uh, strive for rather than churning out uh, vast amounts of programming, say like, you know, a three hour a day radio show and an hour a day television show and a, uh, one week, uh, hour long podcast. There are those uh, who aren't interested in simply turning out quantity over quality. I would also say that there's, um, a few of us who, you know, have, have quite a workload, but, uh, try to make sure that what we do does have some quality as well. 
<clears throat> Not sure how we're doing with that, but uh, we're giving it the old college try. All right, we do need to step away for a, uh, another week, unfortunately. But the good news is you can always catch the uh, NRA News Cam and Company program on a daily basis, live at 2 p.m. Eastern on NRAnews.com. Also, midnight Eastern on Sirius XM Patriot 125. And on demand all the time at iHeartRadio and on iTunes, as well as the NRA app. Plus, we've got the Sportsman Channel show, 5 p.m. Eastern weekdays on uh, Sportsman Channel, as I just mentioned. And uh, you can follow me on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash CamEdwards2A. On Twitter, it's at CamEdwards, at NRA News, and at Cam and Company. Thank you so much for being a part of this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. Until we talk again, be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot, and we'll talk to you soon. You're listening to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.